want to invite you this morning to uh, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. It's uh, on page 876 there in the Bibles in the seats. And uh, this morning we're beginning <coughs> our summer series. We're going to leave Ephesians for uh, a couple of months. And I uh, chose to um, call this series for the summer Stories Jesus Told. And the parables, the stories that Jesus told. Um, I think it's uh, so admirable to be able to think that Jesus was able to tell these very simple stories that had profound life-altering truth. You know, everybody loves the stories that Jesus told. They're easy to remember. And uh, one of my goals for the summer is that we would become so familiar with them that we would repeat them, that we would share them with other people in the context of our conversations with people because they contain the rich, rich truths that sometimes people won't take kind of front on. But when you kind of tell a story, it, it takes Jesus' words and it plants them, you know, into people's hearts. And then the Spirit of God begins to kind of bother people with the stories that Jesus told. And so I'm kind of excited about it. Um, it's such a privilege that we have to announce the good news to people. I had the opportunity this week to um, meet together with this young couple uh, who are not married, and they have a couple of kids, and um, they want to get married. They want to kind of straighten things out and do things right and yada, yada. And so, you know, I was just playing dumb with them, and that's easy for me to do, but I was like, so, you know, the church you go to, why don't you go to your own church, you know, and so on and so forth. And they go to, you know, a church that... Um, has really no answer for their situation. And, and I thought, how sad. Uh, they said, well, we did go to our church, and our church told us that we should go get a justice of the peace and get married and then come back married, and then we can talk. And uh, I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense, you know. And so I was able to just share with them, like, the really good news that, uh, hey, do I really have good news for you? Like we sang about this morning, that the shame can be gone, that... The God that we worship has an answer for your situation. That's Jesus, and he died on the cross, and he takes away your sin. And, and as I was kind of sharing this, I could just see on their faces, like they were braced for me to just blast them, you know, and scared. And I could see this relaxation come on. It's such a privilege to be able to go around and announce to people the forgiveness of God that he's offering us through the cross. It's such a privilege. And then I told them the story of the prodigal son. You know, everybody remembers the story of the prodigal son. It's pretty easy to remember, you know. And here's this kid who really messes up, and we're not denying the sin of everything. But you know what? He repented. He came home. The father embraced him, and so on and so forth. And then you've got, you know, the other kid who thinks that he didn't ever do anything wrong, and he ends up not coming to the party, you know. And I'm like, listen, you're in a great place here. We can, we can do this in a way that will really bring honor to God, you know. And so I love these stories, and, and it's just, you know, as a church, we're committed to becoming a community of God-first people, right? That's what we're all about. We're trying to become God-first people. We all have a growing edge to us. And then uh, God-first people, one of the characteristics about God-first people is they're always growing. We always have a growing edge to us. We're, we're never, you know, God is in the process of making us more like Christ. So there's always room for growth. And then the Bible says, you know, that when we're God-first people, God, like, fills us up to the point that we spill over onto other people with our abundance and uh, influence other people. So we grow others, not just grow ourselves, but in that process, grow others. And one of the best ways to do it is just take these stories and tell them. You know, I love to end our services reminding everybody, now unto him who's able to do exceeding abundantly. What does abundance mean? 
Abundance means you're so filled up with the spiritual life that God wants to give us that it spills out onto other people. That's what abundance is. You just got enough, not just for yourself, but it goes on to other people. You know, uh, this abundance uh, according to the power that's at work within us and, and, and so on and so forth. And so uh, one, I think, helpful way to keep growing in your life, uh, I think this is really uh, a great way to keep growing, is um, a little phrase that came from a book that was published a while back uh, called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one of those habits was begin with the end in mind. It's great advice. Begin with the end in mind. If you're going to do something, figure out, well, at the end, where do you want to be? And what do you want to do? And, and so on and so Begin with the end in mind. And when we think spiritually and we begin with the end in mind, I thought one of the best stories to start with for this summer is a story found in um, Luke chapter 16. It's a story that Jesus told that's very unique. It's very unique. It's different than uh, a lot of the other stories. And uh, I, I tell you the truth, I don't know if there's a more thought-provoking, provocative story that Jesus tells that it so uh, can get into your spirit that most people, when they read it, they just ignore it. They don't want to sit and meditate on it and think about it because it's about the end. It's about what happens after you die. And it's a story that Jesus told. And I don't think Jesus ever told a story without a point, right, without a purpose. And so there are a number of lessons that I think we can learn. But this is a very uh, provocative story. And and uh, one of the things that makes this unique, it's the only story that Jesus told that he actually names a person, gives the person a name. You know, all the other stories are, well, you know, there was a farmer went out to sow, and there's a rich guy who did this. But this story, he's talking and he names the person, which leads to some speculation by some people that this story might describe actual events that Jesus' listeners would know who he was talking about. Possibly. Nobody knows for sure. But it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Furthermore, what makes this story unique, this is the only story in the entire Bible, the only story Jesus told that actually describes the thoughts and the emotions of a dead person. That actually goes into the mind and the heart of a person after they've died and Jesus relates back what they're thinking, what they're remembering, you know, what fears they have and so on and so forth. And so it's a very unique story. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a voice from the dead. And Jesus, by the way, talked more about hell than anybody else in Scripture. Um, he gave his life to spare us from this wrath of God in a place called hell. And so uh, this particular story speaks about that. And then furthermore, I think one other uh, reason that this is such a unique uh, story that Jesus tells is because this story is the only story where Jesus actually pulls back the curtain so that we can look from this life across, you know, the divide of death and see what's going to happen on the other side and see what's going to be like. And so if you were to begin with the end in mind and if you were to realize and acknowledge that the end is not the day you die, that the end in mind that Jesus is revealing to us goes beyond the course of this life. Most people live their life as if when they die, that's the end. And Jesus tells a story here. I mean, you, you would say, oh, well, I believe there's life after death. But my way of living pretty much, you know, is locked into assuming that when I die, that's the end. And what would happen if you began with the true end in mind? And how different would you live if you knew the end that you were moving toward? And that's what this story is all about. It's that one occasion where Jesus sort of pulls back the curtain and lets us see between now and what happens after we die. 
And um, it's really a fascinating story. And so begin with the end in mind. Do not consider your death your end. Because that's why Jesus is helping us. And of course, this isn't the only place in the Bible that talks about this. But obviously, all through the Bible, um, the day you die is not the end. There is for sure an ongoing existence. And so this story is found in Luke 16, beginning at verse 19. And I think it's helpful to think of this story in three different sections. Uh, the first section is just, you know, the lives of these two people when they were alive. The second section is when they die. And the third section focuses on the rich man and uh, his thoughts and so forth. And so the first part of this story just describes the two persons' um, earthly life and uh, the radical contrast between the two. One is very rich and one's very poor. And so let's read a couple of verses. Um, verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day, every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. <laughs> pretty graphic description by Jesus of the poor man, right? Lazarus. And so one very rich man, one very poor man. And it's important to note in this story, it seems to me, there's absolutely nothing that condemns the rich man for being rich. And there's nothing that praises the poor man for being poor. There are other portions of scripture which teach us about riches and poverty. But in this particular story, I think it's just a description of two people. Um, but, you know, we do know that in other places, uh, the Bible warns us that riches can often distract us from God, right? You and I live here in Fairfield County, uh, the so-called Gold Coast, or at least it used to be. And, um, you know, wealth is a common factor amongst us in terms of the rest of the world. And if we were to put any of us, you know, on a scale with the rest of the world, we'd discover how rich we really are being here. We don't always think that, but it's the truth. Uh, Jesus said, for example, if you have your Bibles open in chapter 18, um, another time Jesus, uh, you know, uh, taught, this is the rich young ruler, another story, but in verse 24 of chapter 18, Jesus looked at this guy with sadness. He was a rich guy. He looked at him with sadness. He said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it is to grow a church in Fairfield County. How difficult it is for people who have wealth to take God seriously. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. What is impossible with men is possible with God. And so, um, you know, Jesus recognizes that wealth can be a distraction away from God. Another place, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, you remember, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and had some things to say about this subject as well. Um, 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, uh, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. It's great gain. We talked the whole year about contentment and satisfaction in the Christian life. There's great, uh, there, there's great gain in godliness when we're content. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Right? Naked we came and naked we're leaving. 
And then he says, um, but if we have food and clothing, with these we should be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root, a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some people have wandered away from their faith. That's the warning. Riches can be a huge distraction from the kingdom of God, especially when riches take the place that God wants to have in our life and become first. And we begin to look to riches to create our identity or power or, you know, um, give us a feeling of security and all of those kinds of things that God wants to do for us. And it's pretty subtle how it happens. Uh, Wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with many pangs um, and so on. Verse 17 uh, goes on. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't think you're better than anybody because you have a few bucks, right? Nor to set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Stock market goes down, people jump out of windows on high buildings in New York City. The uncertainty of riches. But on God. Who doesn't change? It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. People with money are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, and thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Lay up treasures for yourself in heaven, Jesus said, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There's a way of investing in this life that has eternal rewards. And that's what uh, Paul is uh, telling Timothy to teach the people that he's able to influence and so forth. And so I I think there's warnings in the scripture that say, you know, there's a good possibility that if wealth becomes like your preoccupation, well, it's going to distract you from the kingdom of God and what God would do in your life. But then there's also a lot of things that uh, talk about poverty in Scripture. And we know that uh, lacking earthly comforts and material abundance uh, can and often does help us to reach out to God. Whenever we're at the end of our rope, you know, that's when we tend to pray the hardest. That's when we tend to look to God for the most. And so oftentimes, perhaps, God uses those kinds of situations to uh, enable us or to encourage us to reach out to him. And he becomes our only hope. But I think in this story that Jesus tells, it's just a description of the way these two people were. And uh, in this story, in Luke chapter 16, uh, if you ask the question, well, who is Jesus talking to here? If you just turn the page back a page in verse 14, you'll find out that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. When he told this story, who's he telling it to? And verse 14 says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. These people were mocking Jesus. These people were laughing at Jesus for the way he thinks, for explaining kingdom values. It says, you know, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things. What things did they hear that they were laughing at him and mocking him? Well, they heard the story that he told before this in the first part of chapter 16, which is about... A guy who worked for a boss, and he had all these people that owed his boss a lot of money, and the boss wasn't happy with the guy. He was going to get rid of him. And so this guy goes to all of the debtors who owe his boss and says, how much do you owe the, how much do you owe the boss? You remember this story? How much do you owe the boss? You know, a uh, thousand bucks. Well, write a check for 500. We'll call it even. 
because he was the manager of the boss's affairs. And so what he did was he established friendships by cutting these people deals so that when the boss fired him, he was hoping some of these people would invite him, you know, to come to their house. So he was covering his own situation. And so when you get down to like verse 9, Jesus says, now I'm telling you, here's the conclusion of that story. Here's, here's what I mean to teach by that story. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Jesus is complimenting that manager for thinking with the end in mind, I'm going to get fired. I have no place to go. I'm not going to have an income. Where am I going to live? Who's going to feed me? I know what I'll do. I'll take all these other people, you know, who owe the boss so much and cut them a deal so that I have a place to go. Somebody will take me in. And Jesus says, now you take money and you go make friends with that money, right? He says, take your money, make friends with that money so that when money fails, which it will, one second after you die, your money's worth nothing. One second after you die, money is worth nothing, right? So he says, take it and use it, make friends, so that when it fails, these friends may receive you into the kingdom. That somebody will be happy to see you when you get to heaven. (laughs) Because you took your money and you invested it in such a way that you allowed these people to come under the grace of God, get rid of their sin, and end up in the kingdom of God in heaven. And so that when you die, you will have people there who are so excited to see you. I mean, you know, Dan talked to us about it today, missions. We have this whole team of uh, people going down to Guatemala for a couple of weeks. And uh, I think last time I heard there were about two-thirds had their support, and they needed another third uh, to be able to leave in July, July 26th. And, uh, you know, they're going to go down there. And wouldn't it be great if, you know, you gave some money and one of these kids went down there and one of these kids led some little Guatemalan kid to Christ and you got to heaven, this little Guatemalan kid comes running up to you, kicking a soccer ball and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you're like, for what? Well, for taking your money and making friends with me through that kid, you know, and now I'm in heaven. I'm so glad to see you here. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's telling us to do. And so that's who he's telling this story to. And uh, it's such a, a contrast. He, he, and then he, if you read through the whole thing, verse 13, you come down to the end of that story. He said, listen, no servant can serve two masters. You cannot have two firsts in your life. You can't have you and Jesus. You can't have Jesus and money. You can only have one first in your life. No matter who you are, you can only have one first. Is God going to be first or am I going to be first? Is God going to be first or is money going to be first? You know, and so on. And so Jesus said, look, nobody can have two masters for either he'll hate the one, love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Something's got to be first in your life. And you have to make that choice. And so that's who he's telling this story to. He's saying, look, begin with the end in mind. Realize what's going to happen to your money. Realize what's going to happen to you. And when you're making decisions along the way in your life, begin with the end in mind. Keep that end in sight, you know? And so, and then Jesus uh, begins to tell this story. Uh, And in this story, um, there are contrasts. So he says uh, in verse 16, uh, in chapter 16, that the rich man uh, was clothed in purple and fine linen. Purple was uh, a dye that came from a shellfish, some kind of mussel, that was rare and was very expensive. And it was a symbol of royalty all the time, purple. 
It was uh, very expensive. And so he had a purple robe and he had fine linen. And a little bit of research said that fine linen is worth its weight in gold in those days. Uh, yeah, undergarment of very fine linen, worth its weight in gold. In other words, uh, very rich and uh, kind of lavish. Uh, but notice what the next part of this says. The rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen feasted sumptuously, listen, every day. Every day. I think that's the clue to understanding what's going on here. Um, every day. Um, he dresses in you know, expensive clothes and so forth, but lives in luxury every day. No reverence for the Sabbath day. No sacrifice for special feast days that were uh, prescribed in the Jewish community. Um, no day was God's day. Every day was my day. Every day. No day was God's day. Every day was my day. Lazarus, on the other hand, is very different. He's covered with sores, uh, perhaps leprosy, so bad that the dogs are licking his sores, and he doesn't have the strength to shoo the dogs away, you know, to punch them or kick them or whatever. Uh, probably leprosy is uh, what was happening. You know, um, it just reminds me, we have a, a missionary, Vicki Beatty, who uh, works in South Sudan, I hope you've been praying for her. She's been sick lately, but she works with leprosy uh, patients. That's her primary, uh, you know, ministry. And uh, she has been sick. She had to leave her post and, and go to the city to get some treatment. She was all jaundiced and so forth. But I'm thinking Lazarus is uh, laying at the gate, and he's got these open sores, and the dogs are licking him. He doesn't have the strength even to shoo them away. Pretty graphic picture that Jesus uh, paints. And uh, I'm wondering if laying at the gate means that, you know, they saw each other every day. That as uh, the rich man is going in and out of his gate, there's Lazarus. Uh, there's reference to him wishing that he could have the crumbs that fall off his table. I wonder if he's outside his window, you know, whatever. And um, it's pretty funny because uh, the, the word Lazarus, you know what it means? When you get it in the Greek, it, it means God is my helper. <laughs> So I'm imagining these Pharisees laughing and mocking Jesus because Lazarus means God is my helper. And if we look at things on a surface level and look at things on an earthly value plane, Lazarus isn't getting much help from God. It's like the 73rd Psalm. Do you know, are you familiar? The 73rd Psalm is one of my favorite Psalms. It's about this guy who's serving God and he looks around and he says, you know, I'm losing. Everybody else is winning. All the bad guys seem to be having all the fun in life. And me, I'm, I'm just sucking pond water here, serving God, you know. And, and then he's able to do what Jesus does with this story. He's able to see past this life and into what's coming. He goes to church, actually, finally, the psalmist. And there he's exposed to the word of God. And there he sees what's coming after. This life is this long. Eternity is this big. And all of a sudden he's content in his situation in life. Godliness with contentment. And so I'm wondering if the rich man, you know, every time he went in and out of his gate, just kind of looked the other way. Did his affluence numb out his capacity to have compassion? Hey, I'm all set. I did it myself. So can they. So therefore, I can dismiss myself from caring for the poor and needy and loving my neighbor as myself and all of those things that we read in the scriptures. So that's the first part of the story. That's their earthly life. The next part of the story, both the rich guy and Lazarus die. They both die. And um, Jesus pulls back the curtain, allows us to see beyond the limits of this life, look beyond the grave uh, to the place of departed people called Hades. And in Jewish understanding, the place of the dead included both paradise and Gihana. 
And uh, both were part of Hades. Paradise is called Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. And uh, Abraham, you know, of course, is the father of all the faithful. And then Gihana is depicted as a burning place, a trash heap, translated sometimes as hell. And it's a symbol for judgment and for suffering and for torment and so on. And so we pick up verse 22. It says, um, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, the rich guy, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. So here on the other side of this life, um, the, the next part of this story, um, I think it seems to me, is focused on the rich guy and what he's experiencing. Um, he, the focus is on him realizing he's in really deep weeds. I mean, he's in trouble, the rich guy. And uh, his condition is fixed, and he can't do anything about it. And he's frustrated, and he looks across this divide, and he sees Lazarus, and Lazarus doesn't have any more sores on him, and he's not that anemic gray, you know, look, and he's not weak anymore, and, and he's sitting on Abraham's side, and the Bible, in fact, says he's full of joy. And uh, verse 23 says, you know, in Hades, the rich guy being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off, Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, that's how we know he's Jewish, Father Abraham, and uh, the rich guy, he's still used to, like, giving orders. So uh, he says to Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus, you know, to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in this flame. He's still giving orders, the rich guy. He's probably used to it, right? You know, he could just bark and everybody would do what he said and yada, yada, yada. But now he's on the other side and he's still who he was. And, uh, but he's talking to Abraham. And, um, you know, the rich guy... Uh, He's in trouble. And uh, Abraham's words back to him are very uh, authoritative and very definitive. And uh, Abraham says to him uh, in verse 25, But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. The rich guy has absolutely nothing to say. There's no comeback. There's this huge chasm that's fixed between these two places on the other side in this place of the dead. And so um, the rich guy then... Um, he starts to remember. He's, he thinks of the past. He thinks of his earthly life. And uh, look what he says next. He says, well then, uh, verse 27, I beg you, Father Abraham, to send Lazarus to my father's house. I've got five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. He says, I got five brothers who are living like I lived. <laughs> You know, I bet you got five people in your life who are living with total disregard for God, living as if the end is the day they die. I bet you got at least five people in your life, probably more, who are just like this. And once we're on the other side and we remember and we think, the problem is we can't do anything about it. Today is the day of salvation. 
And so I, I just, I would encourage you to just think about uh, who some of those people might be and say, you know, this would be a great story to share with some of those people. I wonder if I can get in a conversation and we can get the subject going, and at a certain point I can say to people, you know, Jesus told a story one time about a, a rich guy and this guy named Lazarus. And then just repeat the story and let the Spirit of God plant that in a person's heart so that they're bothered and at least they entertain the thought that maybe the end isn't what I thought the end was, you know? Um, and then uh, something interesting happens. Um, Abraham responds again to this guy in verse 29. Abraham said, listen, your brothers, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. They have Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and they have the prophets, right? That's what he says in verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Let them hear the word of God. They have the word of God, right? And then this guy, this is Abraham talking to the rich guy, and the rich guy goes back in verse 30. He says, no, <laughs> no, Father Abraham. He's just used to, you know, this is the father of all the faith. This is Abraham. And he's like, no, that's not good enough, God's word. But if somebody would go back from the dead, if something spectacular would happen, if a miracle could happen, then they'd believe. You need to do something more than just send your word. And... Uh, as Jesus tells the story, he says, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And Abraham says to him, if they won't listen to the word of God, miracles are useless. If they won't listen to the word of God, look, verse 31, he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if somebody should come back from the dead. Now, that's the truth. There are always people who are saying, if God would just do something spectacular, if God would just heal, if God would just win the lottery for me, if God would just, you know, give me the promotion that I need, if God would just do something, then I would believe him. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not how it works. If you won't believe his word, if you won't take what he's already given you, miracles aren't going to convince anybody of anything. They'll explain them away. And I think you probably realize that that's the truth, you know? And so Abraham says, your life's not going to be affected by miracles if you don't believe God's word. And people, you know, always think that God can wow us into something. In fact, you know, in John chapter 11, right, Jesus actually brings a guy back from the dead. Ironically, his name's Lazarus. <laughs> Remember, Lazarus was dead for three days. He's buried already and everything. Jesus back from... If you read John chapter 11, you know what the Jewish people did after Jesus brought that guy back from the dead? They plotted to kill him. That's what miracles do. Instead of everybody being wowed and saying, oh, my goodness, in our presence is the one who has the keys to life and death and let's worship him. Now, we're going to figure out how to get rid of him because we're scared by him and we like being God. It's the essence of sin, right? Satan said, you can be your own God. Now, all of a sudden, we got somebody more powerful than us and we got to get rid of him. We either got to bow down to him or we got to get rid of him. And they began to plot to kill him for raising somebody from the dead. And, of course, Jesus himself raises from the dead. How many people today take Easter seriously? How many people do you know in your sphere of influence, you know, who are saying, you know, I know that the end is heaven and that because of that I've reordered all my life and I've recalculated all my decisions with the end in mind because of Easter Sunday and Jesus coming back from the dead. We have one voice that speaks to us from the other side, and it's Jesus. And he speaks clearly and he speaks authoritatively. He speaks definitively. He's the one who told this story, pulling back the curtain so we could just have a peek. 
You know, if only I could know what it's really like. If only I could know that there's really another life coming. Well, here's Jesus pulling back the curtain and saying, this is what it's going to be like. Our choice is do we believe him or not? Do we take him at his word, you know? And so that's the story. It's the story about the rich man and Lazarus. So what are some conclusions we can draw from Jesus' story? Let me just suggest a few uh, purposes that Jesus might have in telling us this story. First of all, I think the Lord is telling us in no uncertain terms there is life beyond the grave. Don't live as if your death is your end. Live with the true end in mind. Um, Death is not the end, and if you live your life with the wrong end in mind, your whole life will be off. Death is a transition, you know? Uh, It's a transition for our our souls are not affected by death. Our, uh, Our bodies die. But our souls go on, and eventually we get a new body. Philippians chapter um, 3 and verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. He's telling the people there at Philippi, our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We're going to get a new body. Our soul is going to be embodied in a glorious body, one that doesn't need surgery. Hallelujah. One that doesn't get sick and have headaches and shed tears, and it will have a body like the Lord's body. Death is just a transition. It's not the end. And there's a huge, uh, you know, uh, a huge encouragement or a huge discouragement, depending on whether you believe it or not. You know, if you know that that's the end that's coming and and you're prepared for it, it's very encouraging. But if not, it's very (laughs) anxiety-producing to think about this story. I think that's why a lot of people ignore it. Second obvious truth that I think Jesus is wanting us to learn from this story is he's telling us there are two very different places on the other side. There's paradise, where everything's golden, and there's Gihana, where everything's miserable. There's paradise where the Lord is. And he's the light, he's the presence, he's the life, you know, he's the the truth. And the other place, there is no Lord. And uh, we have all the rest of the New Testament revelation to help us uh, understand what heaven and hell are really like. I mean, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, you know, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. Live with the end in mind. Um, Invest in heaven, invest in eternity. Um, We had a funeral here on uh, this week, and... uh, I tried to share from Revelation that there's a passage in Revelation that says, look, your deeds follow you to heaven. Your deeds never precede you to heaven. Jesus precedes you. Jesus is the only one who can open the door of heaven for you. Jesus precedes us. But our deeds follow us, the Bible says. How we live matters. And the deeds in this life uh, follow us. And then uh, John 14, Jesus says, you know, uh, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And there's many mansions in my house. And if it were not so, I'd tell you, and so on and so forth. And in uh, Mark's uh, gospel, in Mark chapter 9, uh, Jesus, he says a lot about heaven, but he also says a lot about hell. And in Mark chapter 9, Jesus says this. He says, you know what? If you're, verse 45, if you're uh, 42, if you cause one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it'd be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were tossed into Long Island Sound. And uh, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. 
to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life, you know, uh, lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Jesus has a lot to say about hell. One other passage in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter uh, 10 and verse 28. Again, Jesus' words. He says, look, don't fear those who can kill your body. Don't sweat the terrorists. Don't fear the people who can kill your body, he says. Don't fear those who can kill your body, but can kill your soul. You want to be afraid? Be afraid of the devil. You want to be afraid? Be afraid of being taken out of eternity and spend it in Gihana. That's what he says, uh, verse 28. Don't fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's who you want to be afraid of. That's who you don't want to give any ground to. That's who you want to be on the alert for. You know, don't fear people who can, you know, take your body out. That's going to happen anyway. And then third conclusion I think we can draw from this story that Jesus told is that um, what we become in this life carries over directly into our next life. These two people, their destinies were settled based on who they were. Uh, I think we will continue in eternity in the spiritual direction of our earthly lives. If the trajectory in your earthly life is more and more towards the Lord, you will be very satisfied in heaven. You'll love it there because the Lord will be there. If your trajectory in life is away from God and more and more to the world and whatever... Well, guess what? You'll be in Gehenna because the Lord won't be there. And that's how you've chosen to live. And so that's the difference between the rich man ignored God. He neglected the Sabbath, the feast. He refused to honor God, what God says about taking care of the poor and the needy and so forth. He didn't like to read Moses and the prophets or his Bible and didn't, you know, go to church, whatever. It wasn't where his heart was really at. Lazarus apparently didn't allow his poverty to separate him from his hope in God. And he knew that what we believe and what we do with what we believe determines our destiny. We clearly know that faith in Christ, you know, is the answer to our eternal life. But real faith always manifests itself. Whatever you believe, you always act on. Whatever you really believe. And the Bible says, you know, faith without works is dead. It's as dead as works without faith. Because why? Because real faith always manifests itself. Whatever we believe is what we're going to act on. And so what we really believe is what we act on. And so the, the fourth thing I think we can learn from this is that death does not destroy our soul. Death only affects our body. Um, the souls of both the rich man and Lazarus were very much alive after death. Uh, the rich man had memory. He had awareness. He had self-identity. <coughs> he had feelings. He remembered his brother's. Uh, the rich man had regrets. He had fears, you know. I think the rich guy spent a lot of time with the if-onlys. Oh, if only, you know. If only I had begun my life with the end in mind. If only I had lived the God-first life. If only I had read the scriptures. If only I had taken God seriously and prepared for this event. If only I could have been an influence to my other brothers. If only, if only, you know. What a sad situation. But Lazarus, the Bible says, was filled with joy. So I think the rich man's sin was just neglect of God. I think his riches distracted him. And that's a very uh, common issue. And then last, I would say, 
Uh, the last lesson that I think we could draw from this is, uh, you know, death is final in the sense that we can't communicate with the people we care about anymore and we can't change our status once we're in either place on the other side of this life. Death is final. And I think Jesus emphasizes that with this chasm, you know. Uh, the, the one voice that does speak to us from the dead, of course, is Jesus. He came back to tell us. And uh, the Bible actually says, you know, if Jesus didn't come back from the dead, your faith is a waste. It's, a, it's in vain. Don't bother being a Christian. If there's no heaven, if there's no life after this life, if this life is all there is, eat, drink, be merry. And... But it, he did come back from the dead. And there is life on the other side. And when we live life with the end in mind, it changes everything. And so Jesus speaks with clarity. He speaks with authority. He alone has the keys of life and death. I had a, uh, a situation a number of years ago where a man was dying in the hospital up at Yale New Haven. And uh, when I went to see him, he asked me if I would come back on a certain night at a certain time. And uh, he couldn't speak. I think he had cancer of some sort and wasn't able to uh, speak at all. And uh, so he had a little whiteboard with a marker and he would write his messages and he asked me if I would come back, and he told me that um, his son was not a believer. This guy was a believer, and um, he knew where he was going and so forth. But before he died, he wanted his son to hear the gospel one more time. And so he asked me if I would come back and if I would explain the gospel to his son. So I said, sure. So I'll never forget, uh, we go, I go to the hospital there, and uh, you know, here's this guy laying in his bed with his little whiteboard. And here's the son on the other side of the bed, and I'm on this side. And uh, I'm trying to make some small talk, trying to connect with the kid, find out what he does, this and that. And, you know, he's like 20 or something, 25 maybe. And, um, and finally, the father writes on the board, tell him, tell him, he writes. You know, like, get to the point, tell him, you know, like, we don't have all night here, you know. Because he was dying. I think he died a couple days later. And so I said, you know, your dad really wants me to explain to you uh, his faith and, and his understanding of, you know, what's going to happen to him on the other side of this life because of what Jesus did for us. And I shared the gospel with him and this and that and the other thing. And he was like real hard-nosed kind of a guy, you know, and he's like, ah, that's a bunch of crap. And, you know, he's like telling me uh, that's for weak people. And my father was always weak. And, you know, he believed this and that, 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 that. and we, we just got, you know, and I tried to be gentle, but, you know, strong. Anyway, at the end of the conversation, we started talking about heaven and hell. And I, I can remember saying this to him. I said, well, you don't understand is that for me and for your father, this life is as close to hell as we will ever get. But for you, this life is as close to heaven as you will ever get. This is as good as it gets for you. You're not looking for... And he really did. He, he, he said, yeah, this life is heaven to me. He said that. And I said, I got to tell you, this life is as close as I'll ever be to hell. You know? I said, can you look at your father laying in this bed with this cancer or whatever it was and say, this is heaven in your mind? You think this is as good as it gets? Do you think this is as good as God can do? What if God raises your father up and gives him an eternal life based on what Jesus did for us and so on and so forth? He just wouldn't believe it. So I would tell you, you know what? Either this life is as close to hell as you'll ever be or this life is as close to heaven as you'll ever be. And I know that you have at least five people who think that this life, right, is as close to heaven as they're ever going to be. They need to hear this story, and they need to hear it from your lips. And you can do it. Simple story. I love how simple the story is. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that you sent Jesus. So thankful that uh, he had this three-year earthly ministry where he told all these different stories to bring home deep truths. And there's lots of people who just flat out, you know, won't accept that there's life on the other side. They think, you know, they go to a funeral and they see the person laid out and they're like, ah, okay, lights out, that's it. But they'd be open probably if, if you told them that Jesus told a story about this and that Jesus came back from the dead himself so he knows what he's talking about. And so I pray that you'll help us over the course of this summer, Father, to retell this story to somebody and that you'll use it to, like you have in our lives. We can sense when we hear this story, you know, the spirit just awakens in our hearts the reality of this is true. And I, I suspect that some of us anyway here are willing to kind of recalculate our lives in light of where the end is and uh, make some adjustments in our living and, and uh, in anticipation, Father, of what you tell us is coming. And I pray that your spirit would have freedom just to uh, have his way with us. But I especially think of people, Father, who are like this guy, the rich guy's brothers, who are just disregarding you. And I feel like all of America is just moving further and further away from you. And so it's our privilege to come and retell these stories into people's lives, and one by one, for you to draw them to yourself. Help us to be faithful to you. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.